mean, there's $31.5 trillion in, in debt that's acknowledged. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Blockhash Exploring the Blockchain. Quick word from our sponsor, Pika Crypto. Pika is revolutionizing the intersection of NFTs and gaming. Through their Pika trading card game, Elders of Kai, the TCG that they are just, uh, creating will be both digital, physical, and Web3 integrated, allowing gamers to play and compete in various different kinds of formats. Whether you're a newbie or a pro gamer that's been around the block, there is a spot for you within Pika's ecosystem. So learn more about Pika and Elders of Kai on their website and social media pages by joining the Pika community on Telegram and keeping up with the latest developments through their website, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, everywhere on social media. So go check it out. It's in the description below. Give it a peek and enjoy the episode, guys. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Blockhash Exploring the Blockchain, episode 339. Uh, today with Seth Hicks, uh, the COO, correct COO of Private Banking Strategies, here to talk about uh, the private banking sector and where crypto fits into this. And, you know, what are some of the intersections that could be really important that people need to know about? Um, so we're going to have a long conversation about that today. Seth, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you, Brandon. I'm really uh, grateful that you've invited me on and glad to be here, man, enjoying uh, our discussions off air and looking forward to bringing some value to your audience. Yeah, likewise. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I think it's going to be a real good one. Um, before we you know, jump into it, uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. I'm sure people would love to know about your background, um, you know, how you kind of wound up doing what you're doing now. We can see all your accolades in the background. So obviously you're well versed, well studied at what you do. Yeah, thank you. Well, I went to uh, law school after uh, playing competitive sports in college and uh, had a traditional legal background, uh, practiced in a large law firm doing real estate transactions, and then spun out into my own boutique law firm where I uh, did both uh, commercial business litigation and commercial transactional work. So helping people structure uh, you know, re restaurant acquisitions, real estate uh, development, uh, and then also litigating those uh, disputes on occasion when, when they would arise. So I got uh, kind of both sides of the coin from putting deals together and then also litigating those issues. Um, pretty much a traditional story of legal practice in that sector. I operate with uh, family-owned businesses, um, small business offices and such. Um, and then, you know, I guess I'll fast forward to when I, I met my uh, partner, Vance Lowe, in private banking strategies through a client that I, that I uh, represented. And he said, hey, you've got to learn about private banking strategies. And as I started to uh, peel back the layers of private banking strategies, I was just blown away that I had never uh, come across it before, understand how valuable it was and what I already did, um, because one of the main things I help people do as a lawyer is keep what they make. You know, you want to avoid risk, mitigate risk, and you want to be able to capture opportunities. So uh, there's some 
there's some tools in the private banking strategies world that are unique to that uh, universe and they are unknown to most people. So when I began to discover those, I, I, I really locked onto it like a, like a dog on a bone. And uh, I mean, I guess the rest is history. So now I incorporate that in with the structures for uh, the clients that I represent and uh, help them keep what they make, help them take advantage of the, of the laws that are available to them, help them stay financially private and um, all of those type of things. Very cool. How long have you been doing it for? I've been practicing law for about 25 years. 25. Oh, wow. Quite a long time. 25 years. Yeah. I, uh, my wife tells me I'm, I'm look much younger than I am. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected 25. You look great. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, uh, personally, I mean, I like to exercise, like to be outdoors and fish. I've, I've got a family, I got six kids, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, range from eight to two months. And so they keep me young and, uh, following them around, chasing them around, keeps you, keeps you young. Yeah. You mentioned <laughs> you played a uh, sports in college, right? Yeah, sure. did. I what played sports? soccer. Yeah. I soccer. played soccer mm -hmm. at an NAI school that competed for a, a national championship pretty much, uh, every year for about 30 years. And so I enjoyed that quite a bit. And I actually, some of my friends, they went on to play professional and I thought, well, you know, they were making 30, 35,000 bucks a year living in hotels. And I thought, should I do that or go to law school? And so I opted right. for law school. <laughs> uh, no, no, lots, that's, uh, it's probably smart opting for law school, I guess. Um, so many yeah, different plus, career options went, you can go down. Yeah. But Brandon, I went to law school at Pepperdine, which is in Malibu. Mm -hmm. So you ever been to Malibu? I have. It's very beautiful. <laughs> Not, that's the only place you need to go. It was, that's the final destination. <laughs> so, I, you know, enough said when you're, when you're in the, the coast and on the beach and the school actually overlooks the, the beach. So you sit out there and you're like, mm -hmm. I, this feels like paradise. I, why would I want to go anywhere else or live out of hotels? I don't, I don't think so. It sounds nice. <laughs> um, it's awesome. Very cool. Tell, so tell me more about the about private banking strategies. What what about that struck interest with you as a career path to go down and focus on? Sure. Well, there's fundamental uh, values and benefits of private banking strategies. And uh, one of the first uh, fundamental pillars that we like to discuss is asset protection. And asset protection, especially in the uh, legal counsel's uh, influence, you're, you want to protect your clients. So there's asset protection tools within private banking strategies that uh, completely blew my mind that I wasn't aware of. Um, for example, uh, the private banking strategies contracts that we use um, protect your cash value, um, whereas other traditional means of storing fiat cash, they don't. Uh, protect your cash value. And then, of course, everyone uh, wants to take advantage of the tax laws that are available to them. And with these particular contracts that we structure in private banking, uh, there's an internal revenue code section that provides the, the money in and the money out and all the uses that you have in your own private banking system are not taxable events. 
So those are two main pillars. I mean, there's a number of pillars that we can discuss, but I'd say those are the main two that captured my initial attention. And um, at first I was somewhat skeptical that the um, purported values were actually there and had to dig through, roll up my sleeves and actually convince myself that it is. And now, you know, after utilizing the tools and it's, you know, there's nothing like it. There's no safer place for your money. There's no safer place for it to grow. And ultimately there's no risk. So I've never been a big equities person where uh, people, you know, they purport to make 30% in a particular investment year over year. Uh, We don't see that. My my partner Vance is a 40 year uh, wealth manager and he managed traditional stock and uh, portfolios and uh, is is really keen at pointing out the the way that those numbers are misrepresented and the risk that really comes back to lie upon the investor and the client. Contrast that with the private banking strategies, and uh, there is no risk. Your value never goes backwards in in a private banking strategies contract. How many private banking strategies pillars do you have in place? We've got, there's seven, seven fundamental pillars that we like to focus the conversation on. And I'll just run down through them. So we've got asset protection, which I mentioned, Mm -hmm. we've got a tax-free economy. So you're, you're working within a tax-free system when you put money in and it grows compounds year after year, that's not a taxable event. And then unlike a 401k or a 403b or any other type of government qualified retirement plan where you can't get your money out without penalty you can pull your money in put it in and take it out without any taxable event no penalties it's simply a matter of telling uh, the, the insurance company where you want them to wire your money and you can use that money for investment purposes like crypto uh, or you can use that money for a real estate investment. You can use that money for any purpose you want. There are no limitations. It's your money and you can pull it out and put it back in as you, as you please. Then one of the other main pillars that we structure for clients is the financial privacy. Um, unlike, I don't know if you've ever tried to take cash out of the bank mm-hmm. uh, in the, you know, a domestic big box bank, but you go and let's say you want $10,000 in cash for whatever reason, you're going to go buy gold or silver at the metal shop or whatever, you, got, want. whatever you want. Yeah. Just, you it's just your money. Your, it's your money, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, the bank may have an issue with that and you may have to go through, talk to thir- three or four different people. And then the branch manager asking you, well, what do you need this money for? What do you want the money for? As if the, it's their money and not your money. And uh, so financial privacy with the, the private banking strategies is something you don't have to, you don't have to deal with. The bank doesn't raise your hand, raise their hand and, and issue a 1099 when you put money in or when you take money out, there's no taxable event. So uh, asset protection, the tax-free growth, uh, the financial privacy. Then another big one is called the velocity of money. Uh, The velocity of money is where you can get the multiple touches on the same dollar. Uh, And you go, what does that mean? What what would that mean to you? Multiple touches Mm -hmm. on the same dollar. When I heard that, I'm like, you can only use a dollar once. How can I use it more than once? Wouldn't you agree? Is that your initial thought? Yeah, that's definitely my initial thought. If I if I want to buy an apple, 
and it costs a dollar, you know, it's transactional, give a dollar, get an apple. So, but hearing that it's like, oh, I can, you know, spend a dollar, get an apple and I still have a dollar somehow. Right. Well, think of it like this. I'll give this illustration. So let's say that you've capitalized your, your bank, your private bank with a dollar. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you can take that dollar out whenever you want and you, you take that dollar out and you take that same dollar that you've capitalized your bank with. And by the way, um, if it's structured in a certain way, the life insurance company treats uh, that dollar as if it's always there, even when you pull it out. So it continues to grow and compound even when you've pulled it out. Okay, and you pull it out in the form of what's called a policy loan, Mm -hmm. Uh, your life insurance policy. You've got you pull out a policy loan on the cash value. Take that dollar out. Let's say that you want to invest in crypto. Okay, so you want to buy a Bitcoin with that dollar and or let's use a coin that you can stake because it'll give you a return. Ethereum. Okay, proof of stake. So you buy Ethereum and we're going to stake that Ethereum and it's going to pay us a return. And that passive cash flow return will say eventually it's going to give you that same dollar back. You're going to put that same dollar back into your bank in the form of payment of a policy loan. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to take, uh, let's say, two dollars out of your bank and you're going to go buy two Ethereum. You're going to stake those Ethereum and it's going to spin off an even greater return to you. You're going to take that return, pay your bank back. So you've paid, you've capitalized your bank, you've paid your your premium, capitalized your business, so to speak, with a dollar. You've pulled that dollar out for the investment into Ethereum. That same dollar has spun off a return to you. And then you've paid back your loan that you pulled out of your own bank with the same dollar. That's getting multiple touches on the same dollar. Mm-hmm. And the same concept works for any investment that's going to provide a return, whether it's real estate mm-hmm. or oil and gas or even a business, you know, any type of business. So it's the same concept. But you made a good point when you said buy an apple. This, if you're going to consume the seed, mm-hmm. you're going to eat all your seed, you're not going to have a harvest. You have to plant the seed mm-hmm. to get a harvest. So if you took all of your money and bought apples and ate them all, there's no return right. on that. So you've, you've got to be smart in that. And we like to say this is for pretty much anybody, folks that are super deep in debt. We've, we've been able to help get into the black and uh, multimillionaires and, and high net worth folks uh, the same way, just profit greater. But if you spend more money than you make, and you're not able to live within your means, this won't work for you, nor will anything else. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's a given. Yeah, you see this a lot, actually, in real estate, too. Um, Home uh, smart real estate and entrepreneurs will buy like a home, and they might live in it for a couple years, then they'll take out like a HELOC, and then they'll borrow against the home, buy another one, then start renting that home out. And then that couple years, they were renovating it. Um, with the capital they had and raising the value. And then eventually uh, they have two homes and one of them gets paid off by the people renting it. And, and you can just repeat the process over and over again. It's kind of similar to what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the same concept works. Like, let's say instead of a dollar, let's call it a hundred thousand and you can buy a little duplex in Alabama for a uh, hundred thousand dollars. So you buy it free and clear and it spins off $2,000 a month to you. And you make twenty four thousand dollars gross 
a year on that that little uh, you know investment duplex, mm-hmm. or you take the same hundred thousand dollars and you put twenty thousand down on five different duplexes, use bank financing on the other eighty percent because it's an eighty twenty loan loan to value there, and instead of making two thousand on one duplex, you make uh, five times two thousand ten thousand dollars a month or one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and recapitalize your bank, rents and repeat and use that leverage. Mm-hmm. And and then you also, I mean, as you're using your bank financing, you pay off those third-party lenders and you you eliminate the drag and the volume of interest that accumulates on those type of uh, 30-year amortizations. But same concept. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you got it. That's sharp. Yeah. You're, so, also, you're talking about like really smart ways in terms of using credit and loans um, and smart ways to use debt. Um, it's really interesting ways to do this with crypto too, because from what I've learned, you know, you, uh, loans you take out, out are not taxable events. So if I were to borrow against something or get a loan from the bank or even borrow against my own crypto, that money is not taxable itself. And I could put that money to work to, to generate money. So like, for example, I could borrow against my Ethereum to buy more Ethereum if I wanted to, and that Ethereum I could stake and pay off that loan and, you know, for the most part, that is tax-free from what I understand. Uh, so there's some really good strategies out there that I think people haven't fully taken advantage of, but I'm sure the ultra-wealthy you know, have thought about at this point and probably are. Staking's, you know, very, very interesting in crypto. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, conservative leverage or leverage that you're able to uh, service and that you're able to maintain is uh, a way to accelerate the wealth curve. And this uh, you know, strategy with private banking is an excellent way to get the money back that you've that you've put into play. And so you've got to always think of uh, what we're doing as a, a separate banking entity that you have to pay back. And so you're always getting the money back, no matter what mm-hmm. the investment is. And as that accumulates, um, the, the growth becomes parabolic, you know, over time. And we've got illustrations that, that that hopefully we can get into uh, as we progress and uh, begin to illustrate that show the parabolic effect decade after decade. So you start to implement these strategies when you're young and, you know, in 10 years, it's got phenomenal growth in another 10 years, uh, even more phenomenal growth. But then by the time you're actually 60, 70, 80, it, it, it's becoming hockey stick parabolic. Right. Um, and you know, and it's, you don't have to be um, super wealthy to start. It's the compounding nature that creates that parabolic growth. So it blew me away. If if you were um, some really young entrepreneur that didn't have a lot of money, um, but didn't have like a lot of bad credit or anything, you know, that wasn't a ton of debt, you know, just starting at zero, you know, how would you go about doing that, taking advantage of a strategy like this to maybe start creating that kind of wealth? Yeah, well, I would capitalize uh, your banking strategy first, mm-hmm. and I would take advantage of those pillars that I've described and a few more that I will. And mm-hmm. then, you know, if you're a crypto guy and you understand that space, and then I would probably go gravitate to something like Ethereum that we both concur will hold value over the long term and still appreciate probably uh, more aggressively than Bitcoin. And still, if you're staking it, you're getting a return on it. And so you're able to pay back that loan that you've taken from your own bank 
and you're replacing that capital and you're adding to it year after year, it's compounding and growing year after year in a tax-free economy, tax-free system, and you're still growing your Ethereum portfolio. So th that would be that sounds like a pretty safe strategy from the hypo that you gave me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a crypto person, you know, if you're a real estate guy, you're going to have to accumulate a little bit more uh, money to be able to purchase that real estate, even using your own bank as the deposit, you know, as the as a second mortgage, so to speak. Does that make Got sense, it. Brandon? Yeah, yeah, that def definitely does make sense. Um, you mentioned earlier about you know pulling the ten thousand dollars out of the bank. I think that's something people don't also realize that is a huge problem because the banks don't really have the deposits they say they do because of fractional reserve banking. Um, curious if you could uh, touch on that a little bit because it's definitely something that's affecting um, America right now in the U.S. economy. And we've had some banks go under um, because of the lack of deposits that are available, um, and it's it's scary for a lot of people that you know, want to go to the bank and believe that it's insured by the FDIC, but even the FDIC has come out and said that they can't insure it, um, which right. is very problematic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that we've been talking about for at least half a decade. And, um, you know, some folks like the older generation, uh, including folks like my, my parents, they, they have a tough time getting their head around it because they were brainwashed to believe that the banks are uh, there for them, that, uh, that they would never, uh, you know, be, uh, take their money, so to speak. But right. we're, we're, see we're seeing now that there are bank failures. And in the 2008 mortgage crisis, when there were a lot of toxic debts and, and waves of foreclosures, we saw that the federal government stepped in with taxpayer dollars and bailed out the too big to fail financial institutions. And um, people, you know, had an uproar and outcry that said, hey, you can't use tax dollars to bail out private entities. That's uh, never been done before. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be done. It's not capitalistic. They should just fail. Well, so there was um, legislation that was enacted, and it's called the Dodd-Frank Act in the Obama administration. And the Dodd-Frank Act, I'm going to summarize it, and this is probably going to be hard for some people to swallow if you haven't ever done any research on it, but the Dodd-Frank Act uh, authorizes bail-ins. And instead of a bail-out where the federal government comes in and bails out a, a financial institution, now the law provides that these... Uh, centralized banks can bail in on the depositors money. And we saw that happen in Cyprus in 2012 and 2013. Mm -hmm. And we, I, I've actually got firsthand knowledge through clients that had uh, banking relationships in Cyprus that lost, lost millions of dollars where the banks were insolvent. The bank was insolvent and bailed in on their depositors money and their depositor has uh, still in litigation uh, trying to, um, recover money. So the bail in is where the the bank effectively says we're insolvent, we're taking uh, depositors money, and we're going to either issue bank stock, you know, stock in the company, or pennies on the dollar, but the bank will go into receivership and ultimately, the depositor loses the, the Dodd-Frank effectively created a, a system where 
your deposits in, in centralized banks uh, are not yours anymore. They're the banks. And your bank statement is an IOU. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing, but effectively, if there's failure, that's exactly what it means. And people go, no way. I mean, that's impossible. It's my money. I, you know, no, it is possible. And we're, we're seeing uh, the effects of that. We saw some bank failures in the recent past, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and the Fed stepped in and effectively uh, made good on deposits. But ironically enough, the key employees and financial uh, uh, fund, hedge funds and other like they're, you know, inve large investment companies that were in the bank, they got the warning well before the f folks like you and I. Oh, yeah. And they were out, you know, they were out and they were they were protected. So um, you brought up another key word, fractionalized uh, lending. And that's an important concept that some people don't don't realize, and, and some do. Fractionalized lending is when you and I take $100,000 into a big box bank, uh, they only have to keep a portion. And depending on the size of the bank depends on how big of a portion they have to keep in reserves. Uh, and so let's just say it's 10%. But for, for the biggest banks, J.P. Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, it's not even 10%. It's less than 10%. But let's just, for argument's sake, say it's 10%. So they get to use your $90,000, Brandon, that you just deposited, and they go and they start making loans with it. They make auto loans, home loans, business loans, and they make a profit on that. And the actual cash, if you wanted it back, you and every other depositor, uh, came back the next day and go, you know what? I want my money back. I'm going to go do, put it somewhere else. It's not there. They've loaned it out. Mm -hmm. And that's what you call a bank run. And when the consumer's confidence in a bank fails, they rush to the bank to get their money out. And because of the fractionalized lending, they don't have it there to give. And so that is why that your centralized banks, in my opinion, are not a safe place to store cash. Um, and so we we still need centralized banks in our current uh, culture for convenience. If we're going to send a wire, if we're going to do, you know, typical transactions, you have you generally do those with the convenience that those banks provide. But as a store of value or just to camp your money out, absolutely not. You need to have uh, some other uh, form of safe uh, haven you know, for your money. Right. That's what banking strategies is for cash. Yeah. I learned this from Mike Maloney a long time ago. He has some really good videos on how the debt works in the U S economy. And it's very similar in most economies around the world now. Um, but it's not even just the, the fractional reserve banking, the fact that they lend out all that money that you deposit, um, and then not having it to insure, but they're also, you know, creating credit too. Like if you, um, they lend out nine out of 10 of your dollars and you swipe your debit card in theory, it should decline if you get something that's $11. Um, but the reason you're able to is because they punch in on a computer, um, digital credit that just goes into the economy and they're just constantly flooding it with all this credit. And it's one, one of the reasons why we're dealing with such uh, crazy inflation and, and the debt ceiling and having to, you know, tackle that every three, four five years. Um, it, it, it's quite insane and it's not sustainable. 
um, eventually it'll, you know, it'll fall apart. And I think what's important for people, and I'm sure you'll agree is, you know, how to, uh, protect your money, your wealth, you know, not just shoving it in the bank and then just hoping that it'll be there, um, in another 10 years, but how can you compound it? How can you make sure that it's generational wealth? You know, what happens if something happens to you or your company, or there's, whether it's illegal, whether it's the government, um, you know, how do you build a, a system that, that works to protect your wealth. That's right. Well, and, and the answer to that, I think that there's a, a need for diversification. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a lot, if not all of our clients uh, have a diversification, uh, mostly with hard assets. Uh, a lot of folks are uh, that diversify with metals, precious metals. And we generally are of the opinion that taking possession of those metals is the safest uh, way to possess metals, which if you're ultra wealthy, creates some uh, logistic issues to, you know, to store a couple million bucks in silver Mm -hmm. is quite, takes up quite a space and super heavy, you know, Um, but also real estate, uh, cash flowing real estate and also land. Um, and for the cash, the actual cash, if you're not trading that cash into, uh, another asset, the, the private banking world, uh, is a system that has never failed, uh, since, I mean, it's existed for centuries before there was branch banking, banking was done through life insurance policies and, um, through the inception of our country, through the civil war, through the great depression, through every other financial downturn, these strategies with life insurance contracts have paid dividends with the companies that we use, haven't failed. And the primary reason is there is no fractionalized lending. There is no derivative uh, uh, banking. And it is all one for one on a balance sheet. When And when someone dies, they've got to pay uh, the death benefits and cash on hand. Plus they've proven to be the sharpest investment entities on the planet. And they actuarially uh, nail people's death, like down to the month, you know, uh, mm-hmm. based on <laughs> their statistics, which is mind blowing, but so they don't get it wrong. And that's why they're, they're more than financially solvent. They're the most prosperous entities that exist and get this, this is where Wells Fargo and Bank of America uh, have massive um, assets on their balance sheet is they, they place life insurance policies on their employees, which the bank owns. So when the employee dies, whether they're still an employee or not, the uh, Wells Fargo collects the death benefit. But in the meantime, they get to use all the cash that they're paying on the life insurance premiums on the employee uh, as cash on hand, but it's stored in the life insurance company. And the last time I looked at the balance sheet, it was either Wells Fargo or Chase. It was 20 billion annual in premiums they were paying on their life insurance policies. So, um, I mean, that tells you right there, that's a tip, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like that, that exposes where they really believe the safety is. Um, so that's, I mean, that's part of the system. I think it's, it's more complicated than that, but that's a, that's kind of an overview of it. What do you think about some other, maybe non-traditional assets that people might not think about that could be good stores of wealth as well? Like we all know of gold and silver, Bitcoin, real estate. Um, 
especially over the last year or so, I've seen a lot of people with money investing into uh, liquors like whiskeys and wines um, by, by the boxes. Um, you know, I've seen some very interesting ways to put money away, but some of the interest that they earn or even the, the dividends and the royalties can be really, really good depending on the asset. Um, I'm just curious, like if you had heard anything that might be different than traditionally what you might hear as a store value. Yeah, well, uh, pre uh, precious metals art. Um, I, you know, there's some folks that are in art, but I, mm. I would always encourage the investor to know, you know, your lane, so to speak. Sure. Um, I've been pretty deep in real estate, so you know, most of the things that that uh, I'm knowledgeable about f for clients is in in the real estate sector. Um, I'm uh, know enough about metals uh, to provide some value there and enough about cryptocurrency to likewise stay, you know, in those lanes. But um, I'm sure that there are lots of smart folks out there that have these alternative lanes that could be really good sectors. But I find if you jump out of your, your lane, you don't really understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like you'll have a, you'll have somebody get jump off into oil and gas, for example, a lot of folks in Texas uh, do oil and gas, but if you don't understand that investment, you can get taken to the cleaners, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that would be my advice is to kind of stick with what you know or consult with uh, a team of experts that really understand that type of investment. But um, I'm sure that there's going to be broadening uh, asset classes and things that don't most people don't know. Uh, things that have come across uh, my radar lately are like car washes, uh, store mm -hmm. self storage facilities have been huge. Um, car washes have been taken on a, a, a big uh, investment interest. Mobile home parks and destinations from the the pandemic, people went into RVs and traveling and you know, moved around the country a little bit more. So the, the RV market and those RV parks saw a, a great surge in, uh, in value and demand. Um, those are all, you know, somewhat real estate uh, oriented. Um, and then, of course, like, as you know, I mean, we're, we're both uh, cryptocurrency enthusiasts. So I think we're still on just the beginning front edges of, of this mm -hmm. brand new frontier, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, that, that includes parking lots and laundromats. I think there's something to say about, you know, low income opportunities that I don't think most people think about anymore because they don't really use them. But there's a lot of people out there that do. And they actually are, you know, pretty good revenue uh, generating businesses that, you know, don't require a whole lot of effort to run. Some of them run all by themselves. You mentioned car washes. That's another really good one very simple and straightforward and usually just handles itself. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities there and crypto too is definitely another one. I know that you're very interested in crypto as well and have studied it quite a bit. And I'd love to know some of the intersections here between crypto and private banking that maybe you have been able to um, ponder a bit and, and come up with over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the the crypto space is very, very much aligned with uh, the private banking strategies, uh, benefits and values. Um, most of the cryptocurrency enthusiasts, they they want um, uh, a financial private 
private transaction, financially mm-hmm. private uh, interactions to the extent that it's possible, and it is possible. Uh, they want to they want less government intrusion into their investments. Uh, they want to be um, uh, protected. They want their assets to be to protect be protected. They want to create um, systems for growth that other asset classes just don't don't provide. So the there's a there's a number of intersections, but and I, we have a, a tremendous um, number of crypto enthusiasts and crypto investors that are also private banking. Uh, folks, and I would say that we've kind of touched on how they they utilize it a lot of times, especially those who are in a long bear market want to see a return and want to see some type of uh, um, you know value. So they're staking uh, the coins that that they can stake, and they're pulling the loans out of their their policies, and they're putting those into uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, proof of stake coins, pulling out returns, paying back the bank and creating a cycle that still keeps them ticking forward. And then as as you and I have discussed, you know, when when the leader begins to take off and if we've 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 entered into the first phase of a bull run, we're going to see in the next five phases, you know, according to Elliott wave theory that we're going to see all this value return. And mm-hmm. so these systems will be uh, amplified, they'll be multiplied, uh, and they'll be increased. And so you'll have the appreciation uh, on your investment from the rise. And you'll also have this, this spinning off of the, of, of the return. Um, but I'll take a breath there and let you have a follow-up question. No worries. I, one thing I love about crypto the most is how much inclusion it has. There's a lot of people that just don't have access, even in the U.S., that don't have access to a lot of banking services that maybe you and I have. And there's a lot of things that you and I don't have that probably the ultra-wealthy have too. And it's just kind of how it goes class by class. But the great thing about crypto is it opens that up so that anyone, if they choose to do so, Um, can take on that responsibility or those consequences. And I I think that's everyone's human right they should be able to. Um, And and crypto's become stable enough that it's starting to make a lot of sense. Like, for example, you can, if you have um, $1,000, you can borrow against that $1,000. If you have $100 or $10,000, you can borrow against that $10 or that um, $100. Um, Likewise, you can put any money you have, any credit into crypto. Um, so it's not, you have to be an accredited investor. You don't have to um, meet those standards and have a CPA sign off on it. You don't have to um, prove a strong credit history that you've made every payment ever. You know, crypto doesn't really care about that some type of stuff. It's not trying to put you in a category um, and it's giving you all those tools to play with. So there's so many more options today, even over the last couple of years that young people I don't think have had in a very long time um, and it almost creates no excuse to be able to set up a system and build wealth, even if it's little by little, um, which is the fantastic part. I mean, how many great investments are out there that you can put a dollar into and the threshold is that lower, lower? Um, you know, you want to buy a stock, you have to buy a unit in most cases. And now there's fractional ownership of stocks. Um, but I mean, for the most part, you know, the, the area, the 
the bar to entry is usually very, very high. Um, so it's cool to see how much more inclusive the space is. And that's going to do a lot of good for a lot of people in the world. The other billion or two billion people, whatever it is, that don't even have access to basic banking. Um, so I see so many different economies and countries kind of rising up over the next 10, 15, 20 years and kind of coming out of nowhere simply because this technology allows them to do so. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I think the the uh, the barrier to entry for crypto is super low and that you've got once you understand the mechanics and get through the the initial learning curve, it's it's a no brainer. And that most people they that haven't uh, adopted or don't understand it's because they don't they haven't educated themselves. There is an education process, and so we're grateful for folks like you at bringing valuable content to to people to help them uh, educate and make decisions. But yeah, totally, uh, totally concur with you on that. And uh, you know, the whole the whole idea of the game is to become you know financially free and independent. And not a, a slave to a system or beholden mm-hmm. to some uh, other uh, uh, control mechanism that you don't want to be. And you know, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about your journey, uh, and you, you know, we're kind of headed off to medical school. We talked about how I've got numerous clients in the medical profession, you know, uh, trauma surgeons, anesthesiologists, and high-level, high-earning, high. Uh, class and high educated uh, doctors who want, who still don't feel financially free. They have a lot of money and they've accumulated a lot of wealth, but they still don't feel financially free. They're beholden to a system which they have, uh, you know, they're under the control of that. They have, and it's, there's all sorts of pitfalls with it as well. Whereas with crypto, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have any of those cons. It doesn't have any of those uh, problems. And if you're, like you said, as we can incrementally increase. And if you're, if you're smart and wise, it's going to outperform, uh, every other type of investment that's available. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like I mentioned, when I started looking at Bitcoin, I remember thinking this brand, I thought there's no way, I mean, that I'm going to pay a thousand dollars for a so-called Bitcoin that I can't see, touch, feel, and, and, uh, you know, I can't, do anything with that's what I thought mm-hmm. as opposed to buying an ounce of gold uh, you know I'm gonna hold my gold and little did I know or understand how ignorant that that was you know mm-hmm. and so it's you know and so the, I think as people begin to understand that begin to adopt this more and more we're gonna see total market caps go from an all-time uh, high of three trillion to 30 trillion. And you're going to see this massive swell and early adopters and folks that have already educated and know what's going on. We're going to be, you know, leaders in that Mm -hmm. in that rush. Absolutely. I I totally agree with that. And I think this is one of the most important times in all of financial history that we're living in right now, simply because and, and this is my opinion that we haven't had a real financial innovation on what money truly is until we had Bitcoin. Uh, we, we've had gold for thousands of years. And for thousands of years, we've agreed that gold is the standard for money. And, and it's been that way. And it's, and it's been fine. and It's been great. But as we've progressed into a more and more digital world and society, the gold becomes less practical. It's not as pragmatic to use in everyday life. Like I can't take 
my bar of gold and go to the coffee shop and buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, borrowing against that goal, it's a nightmare. You still got to rely on a third party. You know, there's a lot of middlemen in between expenses and fees to, to even do that. Um, so it, it's so complicated and, and um, problematic to rely on gold in, in these days and times. And back in 2008, when we had the last major financial recession in the U.S., um, we were gifted with Bitcoin by Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they are, um, whether it's a government's DARPA project, whether it's an alien from outer space, whether it's the Chinese, you know, everyone has their own theory or right. just some dude on their computer, who knows, which might just be the case. Um, but the, the Bitcoin itself and Satoshi wrote about this in the white paper very specifically, you know, Bitcoin as a peer to peer cash system was designed to be an alternative to the central banking system. And he highlighted a lot of the problems that money and banking have today that it still had in 2008, 2009. And Bitcoin was a solution for that. And right. in all of Bitcoin's existence since 2008, 2009, um, we have not seen a recession or a depression or a real financial downturn to test Bitcoin until now. And so now we have that revolutionary technology designed and built and conceived specifically to rebut a massive problem that we're all about to face. And now we're going to see for the first time in this moment in history, you know, how does it perform? Is it really that safe haven asset that we will all want it to be? Will it save ordinary people that are stuck in the banking system that want to opt out, that want to have control, lead, uh, liberties and freedoms over their financial situation and sovereignty over their money and their wealth. Um, you know, that, that is what makes 2023 so important, which makes 2024 so important um, is this whole change of this idea of money. So um, I've always liked crypto. I've always liked blockchain and there's a million things you can do in this space. But at this very particular point in time, Bitcoin is the most fascinating to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, given the, I mean, to kind of bring the conversation back to the, the question, uh, we, I think we've also got to analyze inflationary mm -hmm. um, effect going on. I mean, there's $31.5 trillion in, in debt that's acknowledged. And um, I've been tracking that for about uh, a, a little over half a decade. And I think when I started looking at it, it was 22 trillion. So it, it is absolutely hockey stick parabolic going straight up. And that is hammering the purchasing power of our dollar that we earn. And you have to be in places where you're, you're in tax advantage systems, where your money is safe and it's compounding and growing and that you can access it and get multiple touches on it in another investment like Bitcoin or like real estate. That's the only way that you're going to keep up with um, the, the catastrophic inflationary effect that's that's going on. Um, you know, and so it, it's it's the Keynesian versus Austrian economic theories at, at odds with one another. One is that you can print your way into financial prosperity and uh, the other is the antithetical opposite of that. Um, and we're seeing the effects of just printing money and spending 
to be able to uh, achieve uh, prosperity. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You have to have uh, value uh, attached to your fiat currency. And one of the biggest mistakes in our country, I believe, is when we were uh, took our fiat dollar off the metals. Uh, you know, when Nixon took it, took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, because uh, from that point on, I mean, the it, we're it, you know we're talking pennies in value compared to what it was. Mm -hmm. Whereas over time, an ounce of gold will buy. Uh, X and still an ounce of gold will still buy the same relative value. I mean, if an ounce of gold was $200 at a certain point and it bought a, a very fine uh, custom tailored man suit, that's what an ounce of gold will, will purchase now. It's $2,000 for a finely, uh, you, you know, customized man suit, but it's an ounce of gold still buys the same thing. Uh, whereas uh, the, the dollar is in a in a tailspin, man, that's going to crash and and burn, and we have to be prepared for that. Absolutely, I, I think there's a there's a date on on the dollar. It's just that date keeps getting pushed back. Unfortunately, it, it's going to fall apart at some point. So it's good to diversify and f start figuring out, you know, what to do with your money. We've gone from like what five trillion in debt to like twenty two trillion in debt in fifteen years. Yeah, it's thirty-one point five right now. Thirty-one, okay. As we speak, of course. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's a there's uh, there's if you want to Google, uh, there's something called U.S. Debt Calculator, and you can Google that, and it gives you like a real time mm -hmm. second by second uh, snapshot of what the, you know, the national debt is, and then it breaks down households and breaks down all sorts of other statistics on this this web page. It's fascinating, and and. Uh, it's it's good for folks to understand that because the the thing is ticking so fast mm -hmm. that literally it's just like money's just burning you know it, it's just the the debt is just absolutely uh increasing at insane uh ratios it's difficult for ordinary people um you know they're kind of like frogs in boiling water and it's just being turned up the heat very slowly over time there's something i like to call a cereal box theory there's probably another word for it but um, 20 years ago, you know, $20 would get you a full grocery cart of food and, 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 and milk and butter and cereal and, and soda and, you know, whatever you want, $20 at the store. And like, you can barely get some, some grapes and some bread, right? Like, but that's how they hide the inflation. It's like, you don't really notice it, but if you wonder why your chip bag is always half full. Um, or why they give you less sodas and a pack of soda or you know, whatever you consume and it goes down every few years. It's because they're adjusting for the price of inflation so they don't have to raise the prices on those goods. Right. Um, and so it's like frogs in boiling water. A lot of normal people, average uh, good people don't really get to see it. They don't experience it. And then when we have events like this, they try to suppress it, raise uh, federal funds rates, try to print more money, raise debt ceiling, all, all kinds of different alternatives. But um, what I'm leading to is, is a question of how can an ordinary person, you know, maybe start to learn some of these things and educate themselves to better understand, you know, what's happening and how to prepare. Obviously, listening to you watching this podcast is a really good start. Um, but what are some other methods, maybe some ways that you learned or that you would recommend people checking out to learn? Sure. Well, I, my learning process was was long and arduous, and I've tried to condense mm -hmm. that down 
for the people that uh, this this resonates with. And so my, my partner and I, we wrote a book and we, we offer that book to folks free and we like to call it a red pill book. And the title is What the Banks Don't Want You to Know. And therein, we lay out some real uh, red pill issues, some of which we've discussed and some mm-hmm. of which we haven't. And some of the folks, they like, yeah, I know this and it helps substantiate their research and some are like it's a brand new world to them they, they have trouble understanding you know that the dodd frank act means that the bank can bail in but this book uh we we give to folks for free on our website it's an offer uh, for a free ebook and if your your audience comes in i want them to make sure as they put their email in that they say they came from with brandon and, and block hash mm-hmm. And, and that way, you know, we'll know what their interests are and they can say, hey, I'm specifically interested in, in this or something, you know, if there's something that we've talked about. And um, we've got a number of podcasts that we've produced that are all available there as well, that folks, once they get a hold of this, they begin to binge on, mm-hmm. on the topics. But we've tried to really condense it down, Brandon, and make it a real simple path to follow so that they don't get bogged down and overwhelmed. The first place that they start is with the, the book, the free ebook, what the banks don't want you to know. And then if that's resonating with them, listen to a few podcasts that we've produced. And if, if they're totally in, you know, resonating with what's going on, they can schedule uh, an exploratory call with our team and, and dig into how it would actually apply to them. So if you've got the small, uh, you know, guy just out of college with the 10,000 bucks and, you know, we, we lay out the, the plan of how it would work for him. And if you've got a multi multi-millionaire that, uh, that, you know, is looking for asset protection and financial privacy, we lay it out for them. It's called an eight-year roadmap that we actually apply the system uh, to them. And this is all at no cost to them. It's really to let them take it on a test uh, drive and see actually how it will work year after year for them, how it changes their financial position and how uh, it can benefit them. So that's kind of our, our process that we've developed mm-hmm. for folks to help them, uh, you know, dig into it without having major brain damage. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, for everyone in the audience listening and watching, we'll put some links in the description for the episode so you can easily find that stuff uh, for the book, for in um, anywhere, you know, Seth, you want to direct them, you know, just shoot over some of that stuff and we'll we'll put some links together. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, our, our website is privatebankingstrategies.com, mm-hmm. but I'll I'll actually we can put the the book available uh, right there for you if you want. And they can go straight to that link and make it as simple as possible for them. Be glad to do that. Perfect. Um, all right. So I think you know, we've gone for almost an hour. Um, anything you want to wrap up on for this, what'll probably be a two part, uh, episode series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've got so much to discuss, Brandon, oh, yeah. we've barely scratched the, the surface, you know, um, there's so much more, I think, to add for the specific cryptocurrency investor and, uh, things that we can dovetail in, into that. I'd, I'd like to, uh, come back with you and mm-hmm. and kind of drill down there some more, um, but yeah, I'm just really grateful that you had me on, and looking forward to uh, some some future discussions with you. 
Absolutely. And thank you for taking the time too. Uh, you're the one providing most of the, t- the content here on, on the episode, on the podcast. Um, I think people are really going to find this not just enjoyable, but also very insightful because it's not something I think most people hear every single day. Like there's a lot of personal education, financial education out there, but this is much more specific, um, prioritizing, you know, um, preserving your wealth, building your wealth, uh, saving that wealth, investing that wealth, and, and including crypto too, which I don't think gets interjected as often as it should be nowadays, um, now that it's so popular and you know most people in America actually have it. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing all this you know knowledge and wisdom. You've been doing this for a long time and uh, there's no better person to talk to. Yeah, thank you so much, Brandon. Appreciate it. And it was a pleasure sp- talking with you.